Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined by Terry Fakes. And let me start out this episode by saying, if you are still listening after seeing the title Leviticus with Terry Fakes, thank you and congratulations <laughs> on making it this far and listening to this podcast. Yes. So you you are here for the introduction. That's probably better than 90% of the people on Bible reading plans uh, trying to get yeah. through Leviticus. Actually, uh, when you listen to this, I think it will help you get through Leviticus with meaning in your Bible reading plan. And I, I'll admit that when I first read through the first few times on my read through the Bible in a year, Leviticus was the wasteland and I, I didn't understand the point of it. But I think you'll hear some things in this podcast that will really help you. Mm-hmm. In some ways, Leviticus gets a bad rap. It's the junk drawer book. Most, If we were doing a superlative for Leviticus, it's most likely to be the butt of a Bible joke is probably Leviticus. <laughs> it's like, you know, <laughs> well, the Bible, you know, the Bible is hard to get through, like Leviticus, for example. You know, it's it's uh-huh. always the one that people yeah. throw out, like the worst part of the Bible, which we've already established is not in Leviticus. It's in the second half of Joshua. Um, but if you... <laughs> I'm saying that tongue in cheek. So go back and listen to our Joshua episode. If you are struggling to get through the end of Joshua, or if you're like, oh, I wonder why Joshua is the most boring part at the end, because the beginning starts out so strong. That's Leviticus right. really gives you uh, what what you're going to get from the first chapter on. And the first question you got to ask with any book like this is what what is the book of Leviticus? First of all, what are we even dealing with here? Why is it called Leviticus would be a good question to ask. Um, it's not a word that we use. But it is a Latin word, and it's from a Hebrew word, which is the tribe of Levi, which, if you remember, are the people who are set aside to be priests. And they're the ones that take care of the sanctuary, take care of worship, take care of the sacrifices. The Levites are the people who don't have land in so much as they are God's people who have been reserved. Instead of the firstborn son, we have the Levites who are going to attend to the things of God and the sacrifices of God. And so Leviticus is a derivative from that name. This is about being a priest, and it's a manual in some ways for what the priests were supposed to do in Israel. Now, the other background piece that would be interesting here is once you get all the way through the book of Genesis and you get midway through the book of Exodus, the chronology really stops until the book of Numbers. And then Leviticus and Deuteronomy, in some ways, are telling us things that are all occurring at one point in time. So give us a little bit of an overview. If you're going to read the Pentateuch, the first five books, what is the chronology versus the text that we're getting? Good point. I mean, roughly speaking, you have the Exodus, the coming out. And by the way, we'll talk about, you see some laws, part of the law of Moses, obviously, in the book of Exodus. We'll talk about what what part is that. And then uh, after Sinai, you get Leviticus is is going to be these Levitical rules, rules to the priests, if you will, and rules about holiness for the people are going to happen for a a very short period of time. Then you're going to get into numbers and you're going to see an awful lot of wandering and some battles and, you know, things like that happening in that 40 years in the desert, roughly speaking. And then at the very end of the desert time, about to enter the promised land, you'll see Deuteronomy. And there you get a telling of some of the law as well. And it has some some a reason for why some of the laws are there. So basically, you're right, Cole, Leviticus and Deuteronomy are right after Sinai and right before entering the promised land, you get a lot of instructions from God about what's about to happen. 
Right. And the first line of Leviticus should orient us a little bit to what you just said. The Lord God called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. And then he's going to go on. He's going to make a few dozen speeches about how to offer how to be cleansed, what the priest should do and not do. So in some ways you have Exodus. The second half of Exodus is an overview of the law. It's a giving of the broad law for the people of Israel to come back into the presence of God. The book of Deuteronomy recaps that law. That's why it's called Deuteronomy, the second telling of the law. Leviticus is almost like an inset on a map where you're zooming into a specific part of the law, specifically the law as it pertains to holiness sacrifices, feasts and festivals, and priesthood. So notice that this is actually given after the the tent of meeting is set up, after they have probably received the broader law from Moses. Now God, even in the midst of that, is going to tell Moses these specific rules about how to conduct this whole sacrificial system. And uh, this is specifically for the Levites, which if you remember, Moses and Aaron are Levites. And so their family, specifically Aaron's family, is going to be carrying out these duties in the among the people of Israel. So the angle I want to take into this book is not, okay, what should we know about all these sacrifices? As much as it is, why give all this information about these sacrifices? Why even have a book of Leviticus? Why not just tell people, God should be worshipped, you should be holy, and if you don't, offer up an animal as best you see fit. And uh, God will do what God does, which is forgive you and give you grace and you go on with your life. Why not just do that? Well, the question that starts to explain this is what problem is Leviticus trying to solve? You know, what is the reason for giving this kind of detailed law in the first place? And this is the question that connects Leviticus with the rest of your Bible. Genesis chapter one, God creates the whole universe. Genesis chapter two, we zoom in. He creates humanity. Genesis 3, humanity sins, and they are expelled from the garden. If you listen to our Genesis episode, and we've mentioned this several times since, to have a sense of the spiritual geography of Genesis is a key to understanding the whole Bible. That you have a land of Eden that's on a mountain, you have the rest of the world, you have a garden inside of Eden that is a very holy place where God walks among his people, The rest Mm -hmm. of the Bible is organized spatially just like this. A very holy place where God is, an outer place that is holy, that God's people are, and then a surrounding world where Gentiles or nations or unclean people are. The In Genesis, it's arranged that way. The wilderness tabernacle is arranged that way. The temple is arranged that way. And we are arranged that way. The heavenly city of Jerusalem will be arranged that way. This is the way God likes to do things. And the book of Leviticus is really a testament that there are specific ways God must be worshipped. And in fact, if the whole story arc of the Bible is how humanity goes from being east of Eden, out of the presence of God, back into Eden, back into the Garden of Eden to be with God forever, then there's a certain route and a certain method for doing that. And what God lays out for Moses in the book of Leviticus is, here's how the people of Israel can can get back into the presence of God in their time in the wilderness and later in their time in the temple. And so what you're seeing is not just a bunch of arbitrary rules or a bunch of sacrificial uh, things that we don't have to observe anymore. 
what we're seeing is there's a how to to the way that we worship God. There are specific things that unless you do this, you cannot come into the presence of God that actually still have a lot of impact for us today. And I think you'll see the parallels are pretty easy to see when you put it in this uh, this kind of light. Um, I'll recommend a resource that will underline some of the things that we're going to talk about today. It's a book called Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord? And it's by Michael Morales. It's a little bit technical. So if you're going to read through it, just, just brace yourself for the fact that this book really is all about Leviticus and it reads like it. So it's it's very helpful, very technical, but it frames the whole theme of Leviticus uh, like this. He says the theme of Leviticus is life with God in the house of God. And if you think about it, this is really a theme that runs all the way through Scripture. You know, explaining it like that, Cole, really does frame it well. And it probably answers the question of why is one of the big themes in Leviticus the idea of holiness? The word holy or one of its cognates appears more than 150 times in this book. And so the way you explained it is we're going to bring the people back into effectively the presence of God. And that requires a holiness there's a verse in Leviticus 20, verse 26, that to me is a bit of a theme here. It says, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Mm-hmm. And so these, all these rules to the priests and the way the people are going to go about this seems to me to be God explaining what it looks like to be separated, to become holy and able to approach him. Right. That's the answer to the question that's at the beginning of Psalm 24, where we get the title of this book, this Michael Morales book, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord? Holy people, the only people who can come into the presence of God are holy people. So if you want to think about the sacrificial system as a way of temporarily making people holy enough to reenter the presence of God, specifically one person, as we'll see on the Day of Atonement, that person who is holy can enter God's presence, but nobody else can. So mm-hmm. this theme is actually all over the Bible, uh, and, and you'll see the New Testament implications of this when we become holy because of what Christ has done, who came from the presence of God, who is God, and we take mm-hmm. on his righteousness. That's the only way we can be reunited. But even before Christ, this theme is is really common. I'll just give two examples. In Psalm 27.4, which is famous in our songs, and a lot of people know this psalm, it starts out, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I be afraid of? But in Psalm 27.4, it says, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. That desire is exactly mm-hmm. what we're talking about, to come back into the presence of God. Psalm 23, actually, one of the most famous chapters in the Bible, but this little part of it sometimes is missed because of uh, the powerful images at the beginning of the psalm. But at the end, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I will dwell in the house of the Lord is this priestly vision of becoming holy so that we can be back in the presence of God. So everything in Leviticus is arranged around this theme, even spatially. We've talked before about the lampstands that are supposed to look like trees in the Garden of Eden, Mm -hmm. the curtain that divides the holy place from the most holy place that has cherubim uh, woven into it, like the cherubim who's guarding the Garden of Eden. It's all set up architecturally like the Garden of Eden, or in some ways like the New Jerusalem. But 
right. what they're doing is also significant. So let's outline the book uh, quickly and talk about what what is it that they're really doing with these sacrifices. So yeah, in the what's first, the basic structure here? Yeah, uh, that's the first, helpful, I think. Ten chapters are all about approaching the house of God. So how how do you approach God in a way that befits His glory and His holiness? That's chapters one through ten. Chapters 11 through 16 are about cleansing the house of God, not just cleansing the people, as we'll talk about in a minute, but cleansing the house, cleansing the altar, cleansing the utensils so that they can also be in the presence of God. And then lastly, chapter 17 through 27 is about meeting with God. How how are the people supposed to behave when they do come into the presence of God, when their sins are forgiven? when they're celebrating feasts and festivals, when they're taking vows and uh, binding themselves to God in the last chapter. So think about this in three parts and think about the movement here, coming up to the house, cleansing the house, and then meeting with God in the house of God. That's the way the book is structured. So let's dive into the first uh, bit of this, the sacrificial system and the offerings. This is probably the most prominent part. When you think about the book of Leviticus, you think animal sacrifices. And sure enough, in the first seven chapters, you're going to get several different offerings. You're going to have burnt offerings, mm-hmm. wave offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings. You have all these different kinds of offerings for the Lord. But if you look at the process of how these are offered, what the priests are doing, what the people are doing, what they're doing with the animals, I want to mm-hmm. just walk through a little bit of a structure of worship that emerges from the book of Leviticus. And this is the key takeaway. This the activities have changed, but the structure has not changed in the way we worship God. So the first thing you see is the family would bring an animal to the priest. The priest would slaughter the animal, and they would do it in such a way that they get the most blood out of the animal. Now, let's just step back for a minute and consider what this would have actually been like. When you go to Israel, you start to think about this. It's One thing to think about sacrifices abstractly, but then to see these altars and to read Leviticus and realize this temple area, this tabernacle area in the wilderness was a slaughterhouse. This would have been Mm -hmm. bloody and it would have smelled. It would have been to our sensibilities. It would have been a very nasty place. They were a lot more accustomed to this, but, but even to them, it would have been kind of a grotesque, place to go. I mean, there's a lot of blood all the time in the tabernacle. And one of the things that that blood is doing is is atoning for the sins of the people. So we see in the New Testament, without, without blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And so they're slaughtering these animals. They're taking the blood. The life is in the blood. And they are preparing for their meeting with God. Atoning is something we'll talk about in the Day of Atonement. Uh, atoning is the process of dealing with our sin. The process of atonement is putting our sins onto someone else or something else that pays for us so that we can be forgiven by God. The next things that happen, the next thing that happens is the priests wash themselves with water. And this is intercession. The priests are going between God and the people. So think about the Holy of Holies and then the outer courts or the outer tent where the people can come. The only people that are allowed to go in between are the priests. They're the people who can bridge the gap between God and man. And in order to do that, whenever they go in closer, they have to wash themselves and they have to be clean when they go in. So water, you're going to see, is almost always cleansing, 
interceding, going between, you know, cleansing obviously has a parallel in baptism. The baptism is the symbol, mm-hmm. it is the it is the physical embodiment of being cleansed of our sin. Well, the priests are doing that. The priests are washing themselves in ritual ways so that they can be in the presence of God and bring the people, the animals, the meat into the presence of God. Next, what they do is they burn the sacrifices on the altar. This is this seems a little bit odd compared to some of the other religions in this time period. A lot of times what you would do is you would bring food to an idol, you would leave it there. And then after the, the the God, you know, quote unquote, has had the opportunity to eat the food, then the priests or whoever else take the food and they have a meal. There's part of that in this too. But what they do with the majority of the meat is they burn the animal so that it turns into smoke and ascends to the heavens. Mm-hmm. And this is really one of the keys to unlocking what's going on in Leviticus. In order to enter into the presence of God, they have to go to him. They have to go where he is. And so you're not just physically going where he is, moving closer into the Holy of Holies. You actually are turning this sacrifice into smoke, which will rise into the courts of the Lord. So you see with these offerings, a lot of times the smoke is said to be an aroma that comes up before God. And he will smell the pleasing aroma, and then you can enter into his presence. But there's a second thing, too, which is the smoke turns into vapor rises up to God as a symbol of our spirits rising up to him. Now, this is this is still common in worship today, not from a smoke or incense standpoint, but we right. speak of let us lift up our hearts to God in worship. It's that same kind of spiritual, spatial coming to God, entering into his presence, going to where he is, which is in the heavens. You know, just this moment, it hit me. You have you have answered a question I've had for a long time. I now know why we have fog machines in worship. <laughs> it, it's a, the theology of fog machines. In all seriousness, though, that point you made about pagan sacrifice, because this is not unusual. This idea of sacrificing animals to a god is something that happened in the ancient world. Uh, Mark Rooker wrote a commentary, and he made this interesting observation is in the pagan world, a sacrifice was something that God needed. In other words, like you said, you would sacrifice the animal. You wouldn't burn it. You'd lay it on the altar. Theoretically, you were providing for your God, and the God would then be able to eat it. Of course, the priest came, got it, ate it. You were, you were giving something to the God the God needed. You were provisions. For in the Bible, sacrifice is something the people need. So God's not eating this food. This is something the people need to do to make them uh, provision for them. And I think that's a great point that you make about even though the form of these sacrifices, the fact that you have animal sacrifices is the same, the reason is completely different. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a great way to frame it, uh, because the, the reason that we want to go into detail on this is not because we want to offer sacrifices. It's because we want to figure out okay, what was it about God's character? What was it about this system that applies to us? Well, that that principle is exactly the same. We don't worship God because he needs anything from us. We worship God because we were designed. We need to worship him. We need to give him glory. And just like they turned their sacrifices into smoke that ascended to God, we see other imagery in the New Testament of our praise and our prayers, our songs that we sing and the prayers that we pray rising up to God And uh, by that, we enter into the presence of God. Of course, we have the spirit in our hearts 
that does that with us. The Spirit prays with us. The Spirit is urging us. The Spirit is at work in us. And we are rising up to be before God. The next thing that happens is they have a meal. So they take the meat that they have not burned, and the people have a meal. Either the family has a meal together, or the mm-hmm. priests often have a reserved portion of these sacrifices, and they eat in the presence of God. One of the stories that will come to mind in the book of Exodus is in chapter 24. After the people have heard the law and after they're making a covenant, God says Moses and Aaron and his sons and some of the elders go up the mountain. And it says they ate in the presence of the Lord. And what happens is the sky almost bends down under them because it has this great glistening, glassy look, and they eat in the presence of God. That's what's going to happen at the end of all things. We're going to have a marriage supper. Mm -hmm. We're all going to sit in the presence of God and eat with him. He will become our host, like a big family meal, and he'll sit at the head of the table, and we will eat and talk and laugh and sing together at the table of the Lord. Well, these sacrifices are a miniature version of that. You, You come into the temple, maybe you're in the outer place. The priests will be inside a little ways, but you are getting close to God. You're eating before him. This is the communion meal of Leviticus. Of course, the parallel for us is easy. We also have a communion meal. It's it's got more meaning than this, but it doesn't have less meaning than we also worship in such a way that the goal is for us to be hosted by God, to eat in his presence, to be totally disarmed, and to be provided for at his table. So they would do that together. And then the priest would give a benediction. They would use words to bless the people. And of course, the most famous benediction is in the book of Numbers chapter six, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. That's a reflection of what's just happened in this sacrificial service is that God has blessed them. He has turned towards them. They've seen his face figuratively. He's turned his countenance upon them and he's given them peace, not just outward peace, but peace with God because of this sacrifice that they have just offered. And so the whole process looks like this, blood atonement, intercession, ascending up to God, communing with him, and then being sent with the favor and blessing of God on you and your family. That sounds a lot like a worship service, and it should sound a lot like the way we either worship on Sundays, the way we do our devos, the way we just praise God in our personal time. A lot of the how here, and even a lot of the elements, if you think about blood, water, smoke, meat or a meal, words, a benediction, really haven't changed in the New Testament as they have from the Old Testament. Yeah, I think you made a good point. I think you said it this way, is we don't worship exactly the same way, but the fact that there is a way to worship has not changed. And I think this is important in my view because we don't get to worship God however we choose. In fact, there's some of the, we've talked about some of the minor prophets really talked to Israel in that way. They said, look, you need to approach God in the way God has told you. And this is a template that does and should inform our worship today. I think that's a really important point. So the next piece of this is the consecration of the priests. So as you'd imagine, if you're going to have people offering sacrifices, Levites who are interceding, these Levites are going to need to be clean. They're going to need to be atoned for. And that's what chapters eight and nine 
talk about what they should wear, what they should do, how they should offer things for themselves, how they draw near to God on behalf of the people. And the Lord accepts Aaron's offering uh, and shows this really is the way we're going to do things. And starting in chapter nine, Mm -hmm. in theory, you can go ahead and start the sacrificial system. And so they do, and they do this in the wilderness, and then they do it on a grand scale in the temple, both in the temple of Solomon and in the temple of Herod. This kind of sacrificial system is going on. But you get to chapter 10, and this is the one narrative piece of Leviticus, and it's one that people always have questions about. You get to chapter 10, you have Nadab and Abihu, who are two sons of Aaron, and they take their censers and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out before Moses, uh, the fire came out before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses says to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. That's the word for holy. I will be Mm -hmm. holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So this is kind of an abrupt story. After nine chapters of laws and regulations and sacrifices, we get this little narrative where Nadab and Abihu are killed, uh, offering strange fire. What do we make of this story? Well, you know, it's also another story, by the way, that people sometimes have difficulty with. If you remember, is later in the Bible, you're going to see uh, people touch the ark and are killed. And so, I, I mean, I just, it's just hard. We go, oh, wow, that's severe. In other words, in our sense of fairness, the punishment is way out of proportion to the, quote, crime. Okay, so they had fire and they did it the wrong way and they they took matters into their own hands. But I really think this expresses the idea of God's sovereignty and that it, it is not okay to worship God in the way we want. It's basically a form of rebellion, whether it's conscious or not. It basically says, I do not have enough respect or awe or think you're holy enough that I need to take pains to do this your way. I don't I know we don't think of it as rebellion, but effectively discounting God's commands is another way of rebelling against God. Right. Yeah. Ignoring God's commands, disobeying him, holding him up to scorn is what he seems mm-hmm. to be rebuking them for. Which, like you said, if you if you're a priest and you basically say, I get to make the rules about how we worship God. That Mm -hmm. really is a serious, serious offense to God. And that's why God explains to Moses what had happened and why uh, Nadab and Abihu had died. The other thing is a story that people also have trouble with, but maybe is a little bit easier to understand, is in the New Testament when Ananias and Sapphira are struck down for lying to the apostles. Because if you think about it, the problem for Ananias and Sapphira is not that they wanted to keep some of the money for themselves. It's that they told people that they had given all the money when they kept money for themselves. And so we look at that story and say, well, that sounded kind of harsh, but I can see what they did that was wrong. Nadab and Abihu are doing something very similar. They are projecting an image, like they're magicians almost. They can control Uh what happens in the temple, but they are actually lying or they're misleading uh, people about who God is and what he said by not following God's instructions. And so we actually find out in other places that Nadab and Abihu's hearts were not turned towards God. Instead, this was a very self-glorifying act that they were doing. And so God doesn't tolerate that kind of thing in his tabernacle. 
uh, or in his temple. Exactly. So we'll see a similar thing in the Day of Atonement as well. If you don't do the right thing on the Day of Atonement, they were afraid that you would die because mm-hmm. you can't enter the presence of God if you're unclean or unholy and not die. So, you know, there's only really two there's only really two outcomes when you enter the presence of God. Either you're praising him the way he wants to be praised or you die. That's that's right. the biblical picture. We don't think about it that way because we 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 talk about entering the presence of God in our worship services, but uh, we have already been approved of by God in Jesus Christ. He sees His perfect Son, so we can enter His presence anytime. We've been approved of, and mm-hmm. uh, the Spirit in us is conforming us to His image. But we have access into the presence of God because of the grace and the blood of Christ. If it weren't for that, we couldn't enter the presence right. of God. So uh, we are on the other side of this sacrifice. They were on the front side of it, and we're doing things that God had commanded them not to do. But that really shakes things up in chapter 10. We get a little bit more about the priests, and then we turn our attention to chapters 11 through 16 into cleansing the house of God and the people of God. This goes all the way from clean and unclean animals to purifications uh, surrounding childbirth and certain seasons of life. Laws about leprosy. This is the this is the famed chapter about leprosy because every time you you see a skin ailment in the Bible, there's always mm-hmm. a footnote that says check Leviticus 13 for different kinds of skin diseases that were included <laughs> under the heading of leprosy. Right. So the priests are checking these out to see if the people are holy, the people are clean or unclean, and uh, how to be cleansed if you're having leprosy or a skin problem or uh, mm-hmm. How to be clean after childbirth and other events like that. Finally, we get to chapter 16, which is the pinnacle of the sacrificial system. And it's actually the center of the book of Leviticus. We get the Day of Atonement. What is special about the Day of Atonement and why does it get its own chapter here in the middle of Leviticus? The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, is is the holiest day of the year. And it makes perfect sense if you think about this, the holiest day of the year in the Jewish calendar. And the it is the day of atonement. It is a day of fasting. It is a day of repentance. And by the way, I'll make this one point. You tend to think about sacrifices as a ritual that you do. And there's a sense in which that's true. But the day of atonement is going to make it clear that in all of those sacrifices, there also needs to be repentance in the heart. Again, the prophets, the minor prophets in particular, are going to talk to the people about you bring and you go through the motions of sacrificing. You you worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And so on the day of atonement is a day that the entire nation comes together to collectively offer up an atoning sacrifice. And so the basic sketch, you can you can add in uh, more detail if you want, but the basic sketch is this, is uh, that the Aaron is going to come into the holy place and he's going to take a bull, he's going to take a ram, and basically what he's going to do is he's going to sacrifice to make himself acceptable, to approach God on behalf of the people. And this is a part we don't talk about very much. We talk about scapegoat a lot, but it's really interesting to me that Aaron offers a bull as a sin offering for himself and for atonement for himself and the priests, his house, before he can intervene then for the people. And then he, of course, takes the two goats, familiar with that idea, and he uh, basically puts his hand on the head of the goat 
and transfers the sin by confessing the sins of the nation onto that goat. It's like on a regular sacrifice, the man or would put his hand on the, on the animal and transfer his guilt to that animal. Well, this is a sense in which the whole nation comes together to mourn, pray, and repent and come before God with an offering. And so you get this scapegoat who takes the sins of the people, is then sent outside the camp, later outside the city. In other words, it's as though your sin must be taken away from yourself because it your sin cannot enter the presence of God. And so you're being sanctified or made holy. So what would you add to that, Cole? That's a basic sketch of what's happening. And this is an annual uh, ordinance from God. Right. No, that, that's exactly right. That's the summary of atonement then and now. You'll see the parallels between what Jesus did, especially in the book of Hebrews, that he goes into the heavenly place, into the heavenly temple, behind the heavenly curtain, and offers himself as a sacrifice on the altar before the Lord. That's exactly what the priest would do every year. And um, there's, a, there's a tradition as well that the priest would uh, tie bells. He's commanded to tie bells on the bottom of his garment and that there was a rope around his foot just in case he didn't do something right and he died that could pull him out of the holy place. But as you see, once he enters, no one can be around there. No priest can be in there. Nobody else can be Mm -hmm. around there. It's just that priest who goes in and uh, he's the one that gets to offer the sacrifice for himself. He's clean. Then he takes the offering of the people so that they can be clean. He spreads it right before the mercy seat, which is where the presence of God dwells. And then he comes out, washes himself, goes back out among the people. And they're supposed to keep this every year as a reminder of what it takes to re-enter the holy place. And I'll just mention again, like we did at the beginning, if you think about what's actually happening here with the layers of getting closer to the presence of God, this really is like getting back into Eden, being before God again, Mm -hmm. going back into the place where God dwells. It's a preview of what it's like to be a Christian, which is to be in the most holy place all the time, because now God dwells among us in our hearts. And one day we'll dwell with him in a new city like Eden, but a city now forever. You know, one of the disadvantages of being a Christian in this sense is I think it's easy to take it for granted the access that we have into God's presence. We're made holy because we have the once and forever perfect sacrifice. One of the reasons I like to read Leviticus, and I think about this when I read it now, is looking at what it actually took to become able to come into the presence of God. And it helps me not to take for granted the privilege that we have now. And just to to regain some of the awe of what Christ did for us. And Leviticus is a great example of of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. There's there's a familiarity that comes with being a Christian about the presence of God that we sometimes take for granted. Not just what had to be done then, but the cost uh, of Christ for us to be granted access back into the presence of God. Now, if this is the hinge point of the book, this is the point where Israel is made clean. The high priest enters the presence of God. And the rest of the book is that second movement of, if the first part is approaching God, being 
atone for before God. The second part is dwelling in the presence of God. So as long as these sacrifices are going on, as long as they're they're practicing the day of atonement, the way that God has prescribed, the people of Israel are living with God in the midst of their community, right in the center of their of their community, actually. And the rest of these commands should be read in light of what does it look like to live in the midst of or to have God in the midst of your community? How can you be a holy people? How can you be set apart honoring God? And they go through some of the pieces of the law. So laws against eating blood. You'll notice a couple of these section titles, unlawful sexual relations, chapter 18, chapter 19, talking about the holiness of the Lord. You get the great commandments, uh, love, love the Lord, your God, but you also get love your neighbor from this chapter in Leviticus chapter 19. And uh, then you get a few things that differentiate the people of Israel from the surrounding nations. So the the word holy can mean, means a couple of things. It can mean separate, being separate from other people. When you get to chapter 20, the words about sexual immorality in, in other places in Leviticus, those are all things that would differentiate the people of Israel from the people uh, that they were living among, the, the people in the land of Canaan later on. The, the tribes that they were conquering, the people that they were going to intermarry with later, like in the book of Judges, and you're going to see that they are corrupted right. because they are no longer holy. They're no longer set apart. They're no longer different than the people around them. And so they're not to give their children as sacrifices. Other nations did that. People of Israel were not supposed to do that. It separated them from the other people because they were called to be holy. They were not supposed mm-hmm. to be sexually immoral like the other nations of the earth because they are God's holy people. They are supposed to be separate, different. So as you read through these, think about that as the lens to look through, not why, you know, this is just such an arbitrary rule that you can and can't do this. Nope, you can't do this because you are set apart for God. You are a holy people. And, and for the church today, there are a lot of things in the New Testament that people don't want to agree with, don't want to abide by, don't want to be like. Most of the time, because everybody else is doing them. It's okay for these people. Right. Why isn't it okay for us? Why does God have this arbitrary view of reality where we can't do what everybody else is doing? Well, for two reasons. Number one, you're holy. If you're a Christian right. and you have the Holy Spirit in you, you are a holy temple. You are now what this whole thing is describing, the temple of the living God. And the temple is holy, and you are holy. So you can't do the other things that people are doing. Now, the second thing, and this is great that these correspond, is the fact that you've been called to be holy is not just God-serving. It's also self-serving in some ways, in the sense that if you live the way God designed you to function, it's the best way to live. So sometimes we say, well, God's way is the best way. Yes and no. It is the best way because it is the way to be right with Him, which is what you were designed for. It's the best way to live because it leads to communion with Him, which will lead to eternal communion with Him. But it doesn't mean that you'll always be happy. right? If you try to live the Christian life as a non-Christian, it's going to be a very miserable life. There's going to be some things go your way, some things not go your way. But wait till you get to the suffering part of the Christian life, which is in and of itself holy. Suffering for Christ is right. holy. And that can happen to us in a way that is perfectly in line with God's will for our life. But it certainly isn't happy or it certainly isn't pleasant. But it is the best thing for us because it purifies us. So God's rules in the Old Testament God's rules in the New Testament are to create a holy people who are living the way God designed them to live, dependent on God, with him in the midst of them, and uh, 
living not just for now, but for eternity, where we will be with him and following all of the the rules that he has for us, loving him, loving others completely in a way that we can't do now. But we are aiming for that with our holy living now. I agree. And I think that's that's important because you are going to hear some Christians say that uh, doing things God's way is the best way. And if they mean that's the way to be reconciled to God, that's true. But if they mean that, speaking to secular people, that you will be better off in a secular sense, that's not true. That's not at all what the Bible is talking about. The fact that we're going to be set apart means that you are going to become the other. And that means you will, when Jesus says you're going to be persecuted, that's not as specific a, a thing as we think. The other people that are different, it's just fallen human nature are going to be persecuted in some ways. I mean, it's as simple as the kid that wears glasses in second grade is probably going to get made fun of. Well, take that on a cosmic scale. When you are going to be holy and follow God, you most certainly will be ostracized by uh, fallen humanity. And so that is an inevitability. Probably the, the biggest thing that hits me out of Leviticus is how different I should be looking than the people around me and not obviously by the tassels on my garments or anything like that. That's not our belief. But if the shape of my heart is the same as the shape of their heart, then that's a bad thing for me. Then I really have not been separated to God. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that God does that I, I just think was really cool, I wish I could have experienced this or seen this, is he gives Israel a, a calendar full of festivals and feasts to keep, to remind them and to go through these motions and these activities of being a holy people. So in chapter 23, you get a summary of the feasts and festivals of Israel. So you have the feast of uh, the Passover, which is probably the most prominent today. We think of this like a Passover Mm -hmm. Seder, remembering what happened in in the Exodus and um, how God brought his people out of Egypt. You also have the feast of the first fruits, the feast of weeks, the feast of trumpets, the day of atonement, the Feast of Booths. Now, you've done a whole series on this, and maybe we'll point people to uh, the series that you've done on the feasts. One of the things I think is kind of interesting, especially as you move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we tend to think of the Passover as being the feast and being the Mm -hmm. one that's the most prominent. But it turns out they're all very important. But the Day of Atonement is kind of the high point of the year. It's the most serious day. But the one that gets the most talk in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, is actually the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths is the one that people are celebrating, people are talking about. There are Passovers in the Gospel as well, specifically, you know, the night Jesus is betrayed, he's celebrating a Passover meal. But the Feast of Booths carries a lot of weight in the New Testament, and it doesn't carry very much weight for us. But, you know, if we were going to practice one, the Feast of Booths would be an interesting one because people live in these little makeshift shanties and remember what it was like to be in this very situation where they received the law. So the Booths remembers more the time of Sinai, the time of wandering. Than it does the Exodus, the time it took to get to the promised land. And so, you know, we are more in a Feast of Booths kind of situation now. Of course, we're in the church age, uh, as we talked about in the book of Revelation. We have a hope and a glory that they didn't have, but we too are waiting for a final destination. And part of their mm-hmm. calendar every year was remembering we used to not be in the promised land. We used to be waiting and traveling to the promised land. And that took on a huge mind share in the nation of Israel afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in fact, that 
festival, like all of the others, were there to remind people in one way or another of God's faithfulness to them, God's goodness to them, so that when they got into the promised land, like we live in the promised land in America, we would not forget the Lord. And we would remember where we came from. We would remember what had been done for us. And I think that's that's huge. You know, one of the things about the feast that I think people maybe don't think about, I know I didn't when I first became a Christian, was you make uh, you bring in the, the first fruits and uh, the harvest, and you're, you're going to have a festival around this. And so you're going to offer some of this to God. But you, you alluded to this in the sacrifice. You actually have a party with what you brought to God. You get to eat, quote, in the presence of the Lord. It's not like you bring the stuff, give it to God, turn around, go home, and God does whatever he wants with it. You actually feast in the presence of God. It's a celebration. And so these that's why these things are called feasts, and it's why they're spread out through the year, is to, these are your interactions with God throughout the year. Mm-hmm. The last section here, chapter 25, talks about the year of Jubilee. This is a really fascinating concept about how they treated each other and uh, how God restored things to people who either had to sell their land or oftentimes uh, sell themselves into slavery for a certain amount of time. Uh, The concept of redemption of property, redemption of people and redemption of the poor caring mm-hmm. for one another is so strong in this area. And that's not surprising at all that in the people group among whom God dwells, they are called to love one another as they love themselves. And that has real practical implications of giving what they have to others, returning things to others that right. they need. And uh, you close the book with the blessings of obedience. I talk about vows, how we give ourselves to God. And uh, the closing line, these are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai, is a little bit of marching orders for, okay, guys, start doing this stuff. Start organizing Mm -hmm. the people of Israel, the community around these rules and around these customs. And they did off and on. Now, they didn't always do this perfectly, as you'll see in the following books, but their life pretty much consisted of doing most of this all the way up to the exile. And then when the people came back from the exile up to the time of Christ and the time of Christ looked fairly similar to what Mm -hmm. you're seeing happening in the book of Leviticus. And then of course he changed everything by being the final and necessary sacrifice for his people. And again, the book of Hebrews explains that, but if you were going to take a takeaway thought from the book of Leviticus, what would it be? You know, it comes for me, and and there's so many, but here's one that just always hits me viscerally is at the very beginning of Leviticus in chapter one, verse four, it starts out talking about if when people bring sacrifices, this is what they'll do. But here's what verse four said. So the man shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him to be reconciled to God. And the idea here is by, I mean, cause what, what's up with putting your hand on the head of the animal? You know, why don't you just say, here it is, sacrifice the animal. This fulfills my obligation. There is a sense of transference happening here. There's a sense of awareness that I have a sin and I'm, God is going to permit me to transfer this. And then you go to the new Testament and you think about Christ being the Passover lamb Christ being the scapegoat, if you will, bearing my sins, all of our sins. But there's a a strong sense of not detachment. And sometimes when you hear the word 
Jesus died for the sins of humanity. That's true, but it's actually a little more personal than that. There was a transference from me personally to him. And that just always hits me right in my gut that Christ, I transferred sins to Christ. It's as though I put my hand on his head and he bore my sins. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.